Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. We're going to be looking today at the actually our response to the greatest gift that's ever been given. And Jesus said to whom much is given, much is required. And if that's true, and, it's, and it is because Jesus is the truth, then salvation having been given to us is the greatest gift that has ever been given. Three people think it was. And so... The greatest gift that has ever been given is our salvation. And that, certainly, if you've received it, should call forth a response of of gratitude. And there's that kind of sense of, what can I do? What can I give, as as in that song? And um, no greater gift was ever given, so no gift can demand a greater response than when we think about our salvation. The greatest gift calls forth the greatest gratitude and in some sense the greatest grateful obligation and we are going to talk about grace tonight and um, the free gift of God and it's a word that Peter writes about here in the passage as we've been looking at we've just started uh, looking into first Peter Peter first Peter chapter one if you um, if you've been here last few weeks I've been looking at and introducing this letter that the apostle Peter wrote to some struggling people scattered people who were like exiles in the nations having been um, uh, persecuted just for following Jesus having lies made up about them being blamed for stuff that they'd not done and now they are scattered throughout the nations and Peter's writing to these people to encourage them even though he himself is if he's not in prison now he's soon going to be and he wants to encourage these other people and um, I'm not going to reread through too much from last week but you can listen to the podcast if you want to carry on with that and, and see how it joins up but I've got I'll just the end of the passage from verse 8 I'll just read that for a little section that we're going to look at tonight whom he's talking about Jesus having not seen you love though now you do not see him yet believing you rejoice with inexpressible joy we looked at that last week inexpressible joy and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. He's saying that those Old Testament prophets, those great Old Testament prophets, who were searching, another translation says diligently searching, those people we've been looking at in the morning, people like Micah, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, all these people who we've been looking at in the morning, the hidden hope, they've been glimpsing the glory of the Messiah coming. They've not known his name. They've had hints. They called him Emmanuel. They've got this idea God's going to come and be with us. And they're seeing these glimpses that, that Jesus is coming. So in the middle of their problems, their prophecy, their hope is Jesus is coming. No matter what is happening, Jesus is coming. That's their hope. 
And they were searching what manner of time, in other words, when it was going to happen, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating. So there's something inside the prophets. The Spirit of Christ is in them telling them, Jesus is coming, I'm coming, I'm going to be with you. When you're going to go into exile, I'm going to be with you. When you go through the fire, I'm going to be with you. And he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the things Isaiah saw, so detailed in some ways, and yet for him they were just glimpses of the glory. The sufferings of Christ, the suffering servant that he writes about. He doesn't see it all, but he's just sort of seeing bits and trying to put it together and thinking, how could this work? How could this be? To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which have now been reported to you. Those, through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into it. And what's he saying there? It's complicated, but I want to try and make it as simple as possible. What he's, he's saying is, those prophets, they were seeing like bits of a jigsaw puzzle. Now Jesus has come and we can piece it all back together again. And now we get to see Jesus has come. And he says to these people, you know, Peter knows Jesus and he knows. He was the first to say, when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's like I've got the picture now. All those things, that all those, that, you know, the things I was taught at school, all those prophecies and the things that I memorised and nobody really knew who it was and what it was and what time it was happening. It's you and it's now and it's happening and I'm here and I'm seeing it because I'm seeing you. So he's saying to these people who were writing, all those things that they were going through, all those things that they were saying, it was, it was for you. Things which even angels desire to look into. So we've got some verses up on the uh, screen if we can put them on. So therefore, this is like a key verse in this. He says, fix your hope, say this with me, fix your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back and explain why that is such a key verse for us. Verses 10 and 11, I've just been reading this. He says, this salvation was something that even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. For who? For you. It's like even ahead of time, Jesus was knowing Dennis is going to hear the gospel of Jesus. He knew that and he prepared it and he got it all ready for you. And Isaiah didn't get it, but it was so Alan could get it. He was preparing it so Sally could get it. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. He had us in mind, is what this is saying. God had us in mind when he was unveiling this incredible stuff to Ezekiel and, and all these people that were praying and they were desperately trying to figure it out because they were in desperate circumstances and what they saw gave them enough help to be able to get through and some to be able to give away. But even that was just a fragment of the hope 
that we've got, because now we get it in some senses looking back. We look back to historical things of Jesus coming to Peter, to James and John and calling them out of boats and saying, come and follow me. And I'll teach you how to fish for people. And the things that they saw, the miracles that they saw, we know about those things recorded in eyewitness statements by Peter and others. Peter writes in another place, we didn't follow cleverly made up stories when we brought to you this truth. We saw it. That's what we're writing about. So there, so Peter's saying, you know, you can look back to those prophets and you can piece things together, but we can we, we know it was happening and we, we've been eyewitnesses of his glory. And in verse 12, towards the end, the Holy Spirit showed them that this really was the messages were not for themselves, but for you. And then he says, the angels long to look into the greatness of this salvation. What does he mean by that? He means he's incredible celestial being, so much more wonderful and wise than any human being. They still look at the gospel and go, wow. Just like they did on, when, when Jesus was born. The angels sang about the glory of God. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men with whom his, on, upon whom his favour dwells. They couldn't stop singing about it. And guess what? They still can't. Every time somebody becomes a Christian, every time somebody says yes to Jesus, the angels go crazy in a good way and celebrate. Because it's like, wow, the gospel's still working. Jesus is still saving. Look what he's doing. Look what he's doing. The angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Every time somebody gives their life to Jesus Christ, the gospel works. And they spend their lives going wow about it, which makes you realise if angels don't fully grasp this, how wonderful it is. There's no human being ever going to. Any, any good theologian who's a truly good theologian will know. However clever we are, we're only scratching the surface of how amazing this is. You know that famous story about Karl Barth who wrote, you know, the systematic theology. It's like this much book. It's a row of books. This incredibly clever theologian wrote, writes this book, writes all these books. And then he's a professor of theology and he goes to America and somebody says to him, Professor Barth, Dr. Barth, after all that you've studied, what's the most important thing? What's the thing that you think most you'd want to tell us? And he says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's like it all boils down to that. We can never, we could spend a whole lifetime studying and we'll only scratch the surface. And if you ever get to the point where you think you've understood God, you've just made yourself an idol. Because God's way bigger, way greater than our thought processes. Alan Hirsch said to me this week, we never graduate as disciples. There's always more learning to do, isn't there? Always more learning to do. Henri Nouwen said, there are no experts on God. There's no experts on God. And the Apostle Paul, do you remember that? He wrote to the Philippians after everything that he'd seen, everything, all the miracles, all the things that he'd taught, all the things that he'd wrote, he said this, I want to know him. I just want to know Jesus. I want to know him. It's like, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I know him. I don't know him like I want to know him. I want to keep on knowing him. I want to know more about him. So Peter's going to look at the implications of salvation for us if we say we've received it. Have we received it? 
Have we received it? Yes. Has anybody here received salvation? Yes. Do you know how great it is? In verse 13, there's a definite shift here. We're going to put a magnifying glass on this verse for a little bit because there's so much good stuff in it with me. Say it with me. Therefore, gird your minds for action and being sober-minded, fix your hope fully on the grace being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're living in a world that's desperate for hope. Where are we going to find hope? He tells us here where to fix our hope. Now, for those who are grammar aficionados among you, everything up until this point has been, the verbs have been in the indicative mood, which basically means they've just been stating fact. Now, he moves into what's called the imperative. In other words, this is direct commands. These are commands. God is making commands through his word. This isn't a suggestion. He says, gird the loins of your mind, it says in the New King James. The loins of your mind, gird the loins of your mind for action. Keep sober. Fix your, here's the key word for us. Notice this, in our year of hope. Where are we going to find hope? Fix your hope completely, fully, on the grace being brought to you at the revelation Literally, at the apocalypse of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Where's your hope? My hope is in the apocalypse. How often do you hear that? You know, we think of that word and we're going to think about somebody standing and walking around with a big placard on repent, the end is nigh and kind of... You know, when we think about the apocalypse, how many apocalypse movies are there at the moment? And, you know, even on, on various, you know, a Bird Box, Terminator, Halo, Mortal Engines, Book of Eli, The Road, World War Z. How many of them are hopeful? None of them. See, the world's view of the end times is bad news. I came out of the tube at Euston a couple of weeks ago and I'm surrounded by these amazing posters all like 3D and, and like TV posters for good omens. And, it, and there's all these signs flashing up saying welcome to the end times. And the idea is Armageddon is going to happen and there's this angel and demon who have to band together in order to stop it happening at all costs. So why does Peter say fix your hope? on the coming of Christ. Again, not just as a suggestion or an inspiration, but as a command. To everybody who says they're a Christian, as a choice, an act of the will, not an emotional feeling, to look forward to the second coming, he says will give you hope. If you know who's coming, then you're going to know what's coming. And it will give you hope. And hope is something that we try and talk a lot about around here. We've got a whole year to talk about it. But, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 famously says there's only three things that remain. They are faith, second one is hope, and the third one is love. And loads of churches talk about love. Loads of churches talk about faith. But I'm not sure many churches spend a lot of time focusing on hope 
Because not even Christians really know what hope is. We kind of just fall in with the world's idea of hope and think it's about, you know, optimism. It'd be all right. Why would it be all right? Well, because it will. But hope, I want to try and explain to you what I'm going to define Christian hope as. It's a kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to get there in a minute, but it's basically it's your attitude towards the future because of who God is. That's hope, the Christian hope. So on, listen please, I try and understand that with you. Hope is made up of the same substance as faith. You know in Hebrews it says that faith is a substance. It's a stuff. The Greek word is uh, homeo, sorry, hypostasis. Hypostasis in the Greek. It's stuff. It's, it's, it's what God's made of, actually. The, new, the early church basically ended up saying it's, it's kind of what God's made of. God's made of hope. And it's this stuff. But it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's real stuff. It's not made up stuff. It's substance, it's substantial, it's concrete. The idea behind hypostasis is, another word in the Greek would be foundational. It's something, not like this, like that. Down, it's concrete. That is what faith is. Faith is stuff. Faith is based on reality. It's believing God and trusting God. So here's the difference. Faith is believing God in the present. Hope is believing God for the future. Faith is believing God in the present. Hope is believing God for the future. It's the same stuff for a different time set. See, some people say that they have faith but they don't seem to have much hope. I'm not sure you can say you've got faith if you haven't got hope, because the two are made of the same stuff. Faith believes what God has said. Faith believes what God is doing, and hope believes God will do it. He will do what he's promised to do. He'll be true to his word. So in terms of the second coming, I remember G.K. Chesterton, I think it was, who said that the second coming of Jesus, somebody said to him, how do you know it will happen? And he said, because he promised he will come back and his word is the word of a gentleman. So faith is trusting God for the present. Hope is trusting God for the future. Faith accepts, hope expects. Faith appropriates, takes for now, hope anticipates. It's like waiting for something good. When we think about the second coming, is it like something that you think, oh good, Jesus is coming. It's a really good diagnostic question about your faith and what it's made of. To think about what you think about when you think that Jesus is coming. So Peter commands, fix your hope. And notice after the word hope comes the word fully. It could be translated completely, unreservedly, unalterably, in a settled way. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 says something similar. He says, fix your anchor within the veil. I bought these at the beginning of the year and I occasionally give them out. I'm going to give some out tonight. These anchors. He says, fix your anchor 
within the veil. In other words, fix your anchor in the place that you can't see, but you know God is. Which is the future, isn't it? For a Christian, I can't see, but I know God's there. I'm going to fix my anchor in there. That's where I'm going to fix my hope, in where I can't see, but I know God is. He's going to be there, whatever happens in the future. So at the end, I'm going to have some of these in my hand, and as a response, if you want, just come up and take one out of my hand. And when you take it, I actually take it and say, it's like I'm going to fix my anchor. I'm going to fix my hope tonight. I'm going to trust God for the future. Maybe you can take it and you can hold on to it and stick it in a purse or in your handbag or whatever, in your pocket. And actually, it could be, I was, I was, just as I was walking down, carrying these, I actually felt for some people, you're not going to hold on to this long. You're going to take this, and then there's going to be somebody who you're going to find who needs hope. And then you can give them this and say, well, this was given to me in church, and it helped me to hold on to hope. There's that um, old hymn, Will Your Anchor Hold in the Storms of Life? And the, when the clouds... When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. We've got an anchor. Paul says something very similar about the, the, the second coming, the return of Christ in Titus. And he says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's like the past. That's what God has done. But it doesn't end there because the next verse says, and we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So salvation, phase one, has happened. And that's meant to change how we live now. You see that? The middle verse is that therefore, because we've received this grace and we understand it, we know how great it is, that should change how we live. Live godly lives. Because salvation, phase two, is coming. And it's even better. It's even better. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're looking forward to. The grace that is coming to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. One day soon, Jesus Christ will return and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. Whatever is happening, whatever will happen, nothing's going to stop that. And you can fix your hope there. Whatever's going on in the nation, whatever's going on in our lives, when he comes in glory, he's coming. And if you belong to him and if you've received his grace already, he's coming with more grace. He's only got more grace for you. If you've ever received the blessing because you've received the, the grace of salvation, he's just got more blessing. He's just got more grace coming your way. Fix your hope completely on that grace. Four times so far in the letter, Peter has talked about the second coming of Jesus. When you read it through, We've only just got started. Peter just can't, can't stop because he, he can't wait to see his friend again. There's a song in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. 
and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. That's the blessed hope. Not just the event, not even just Jesus, but what Jesus brings. Grace and more grace. He's bringing grace. If he's brought you the grace of salvation, he just wants to bring you more grace. Are you ready for that? I mean, I get excited about that. There was a time, I remember for a while when Joel was a little boy, we, I used to put him to bed and pray over him and, and, I, and I ended up talking to him a lot about the second coming for a while. I think he was about seven or eight. I remember at one point he was like, Dad, can I go now? And I was like, well. But I thought, that's how it should be. You know, it, the level of excitement and expectation over Jesus' return really depends on where your hope is fixed. Whether you know the grace of salvation and the grace to come. If you've been saved by grace, you know when you first came to Jesus, it was all grace, wasn't it? That, first, that salvation came. And the day when Jesus comes and destroys death and all evil forever, when the King of Kings brings heaven to earth, it will be grace after grace after grace. He'll glorify us. We'll receive the grace of salvation. He's going to give us new indestructible bodies. He's going to give us that. I don't know if you've ever read and looked and read the New Testament and looked about this stuff. He's going to give us just the most, you know, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sounding of the trumpet, he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Everything that we couldn't understand here, he'll give us the grace to be able to understand it. He will give us the wisdom behind it. He'll give us the, the and, and in his presence, all those things that we're like, why did that happen and how did that happen? And he'll, and he'll be like, ah, because you're good. Because of grace. That's what you were doing when I didn't know what you were doing. Grace. We don't get what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We need mercy. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. But he's not coming with mercy. He came with mercy first time. And the grace of salvation to be preached to everybody. The means of mercy was the cross to offer us the grace of salvation. And one day he's coming soon to the earth and he's coming with judgment for unrepentant sin. For everybody who hates him will receive judgment. For all who fix their hope here and now, that will be the only hope that they have and it won't last. At the same time, he's going to come with grace, grace, grace. For those who've already received it, for those to whom much is given, he's going to give us more. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound very fair. No, it's called grace. Because nobody deserves it. Nobody gets saved except by grace. And any rewards that he gives us will come again by grace as a free gift. Does anybody imagine that Christ will come obligated? That he'll have to give us something because we've been good. 
He'll have to reward us because of our spirituality. Are we under the illusion that our final inheritance will be by right? I hope not. By earning, by worthiness. No. It's all grace. If you've come to Jesus, if you haven't yet, with all the urgency I can muster, I'm praying now and asking God to speak to people right now. I urge you, don't put this off. If you're not sure, if the idea of Jesus' second coming doesn't give you a, something of a thrill, I know, then you really have to wonder about what kind of faith you have based upon what kind of hope you have. Because if our, if our hope is all in this life and not for the next life and not about his, his, his second coming, we have to wonder, do we understand, understand the grace that came to us when he first came? Because it was all grace and we didn't deserve it and we couldn't earn it like the song says. We've got no right to claim it. It's all grace. And when he comes in glory, it will all be about grace too. One after another after another. Jesus is so Gracious. I had a dream a little while ago, a couple of years ago, and I was just looking through. Sometimes it's good to make notes of your dreams and go through them. I was reading this dream the other day, and it just reminded me, in this dream, the end of it, Jesus was there, and he had this book. And I said, you know, I'm with Jesus. I said, Lord, what's that book? And he says, that's your book. And there's got to be a little thing that kind of goes, uh-oh. And I said, what's in the book? And he, he just looked at it and he smiled and he says, every time he said thank you. Every time he said thank you, that's in the book. Thank you. And he thanked me for being thankful. <laughs> See, that's what he's like. That's why we don't have to fear the second coming of Jesus. Because he's coming with grace. He's coming with more grace. That's all he's got for us is grace. And the, great, the book that he carries is not the book of my misdeeds, my sins, because that already was dealt with on the cross. That's already been forgiven. He doesn't deal with me on the basis of my past sins anymore. He's coming to reward me for stuff that I'm going to be like, really? It's grace that we're saved. So Peter says, fix your hope fully on this. It's all grace. Grace that saved us will keep us and make us grateful, no matter what. And the right way to translate this is there. It's this grace, he says, is being brought. The way that the Greek is set up this apparently is it's like something's come in the future, but it's so certain, it's like it's already here. So it's, it's, it's coming, but it's like it's really here. So this isn't like the checks in the post. It's more like, it's not even like the email that says order confirmed. It's like he's coming up the drive with the Amazon parcel. <laughs> that's, that's what this is saying. And he's bringing grace, grace, grace. What we need, it's, it's just... and. And so fix your hope fully on the grace that is coming. And Peter writes then two practical things in the verse that tell us how to do that, how to live like people who have set our hope fully on the grace that is to come. Two things that he says, therefore we should do. 
Because even though it's at the end of the verse, these two things kind of lead up to it as the, as the most, that, that, that's the most important, these modify the verb. Gird your minds for actions and keep sober, keep sober-minded, that's how you fix your hope. One at a time, we're gonna deal with them, then we're gonna pray. Gird up the loins of your mind for action. We don't understand what that means because we don't tend to wear robes, most of us. But in those days, everybody wore robes. And if you were going to set off and run, you would hitch up your robes, tuck them into your belt, so then you could run. Otherwise, you'd be like, and fall over. So they would wear a belt to tie everything together. And it's the first thing that they did. They would kind of fold it up and tuck it in ready to go. Exodus chapter 12, God told the people at the end of the Passover meal, he says, now you shall eat it with your loins girded and sandals on your feet. In other words, you're not staying here in Egypt, so get ready, you're going to go. That's how you, you eat this meal, with your sandals on, pointing towards the front door, because you're going to go in a minute. So what does Peter mean when he says, gird up the loins of your mind for action? He basically means tie up whatever's loose, especially in your mind. The word mind here is dianueo. It's basically the, the, the way you see things in your mind. Tie that up. Because we make pictures and we have all kinds of stuff, don't we, in our minds of how things could be and how things are and it's all over the place sometimes. And he says, tie all of that up. Don't fix your mind on, on wrong things and evil desires. He goes on to list some of them later on. The way that you used to live before grace came and saved you. He says, don't have your mind all over the place and thinking about all those things. Instead, fix your grace on the hope that is to come, on the eternal in inheritance, so that you're living here like you're good to go. Nothing here is holding on to me. Nothing here is holding me back. Like the Israelites, they're not, you know, they might have had a nice garden in the slave hut, but they weren't staying. There was nothing they were thinking, I need to, I need to make sure I've got that. They're basically ready, good to go, out of slavery into the, prior, into the promised land. So he's saying, get your priorities right. D disentangle yourself. Anything from the gutter. Anything that's clutter in your mind, get ready to let it go. Paul uses the same picture in Ephesians chapter 6, the armour of God. The first part of the armour. You know what it was? The belt of truth. You think, why is that the first part of the armour? Because it's the most important bit when you're going to get ready for a fight. You put the belt on. This is what a Roman soldier would do. First thing that they did, so that their robe didn't fly about and they couldn't get the sword out and couldn't get the shield because the robes are all over the place, they would tie that belt on and that basically said, right, I'm serious. I'm getting ready for a fight. <coughs> Peter says, do that with your mind. Your spiritual, mental attitude. Make up your mind. Make a decision. Take every thought captive. And that's so hard, isn't it? Because everything in our culture wants our minds to be all over the place. Because what's happening on Twitter? And what's happening on Facebook? And what's the news saying? And whoop, there's a notification. Bing, 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 bing. And our minds are all over the place. Martin Luther said, I have two dates on my calendar. 
this day and that day. That's how we lived. This day and that day. I don't think we live like that. Because we're so much focused on all the things that are going on in this world, distressing us and distracting us. Because all our priorities are here and now. Gird up your mind. Tie it down. Example, there's things it's homework. What about sometime this week? Five minutes. Some of us, ten minutes. Just to make a commitment to sit quietly, no notifications. Phone off. Just you and God and say, Lord, what are your priorities for me? Just as simple as that. And just sit there and listen. Let him tell you what matters most. And it's like the needle will stop spinning round and round and round and round. And, and there'll be a direction to follow. And the second thing to do is keep sober. Now, of course, that does involve not getting drunk. You can't get drunk and be sober-minded. And... I've got to say, a few years ago, some of you know I stopped drinking alcohol completely. It's one of the best things I ever did in my, in my life. I've got no regrets about it at all. I found figures this week that said that the physical, relational and mental toll, that the NHS, it costs over three billion pounds a year. Alcohol. You think about drink, drink driving, add into that. Think about domestic disputes. All the reported crimes, half a million reported crimes per year in which drink is a factor, a serious factor. Then adding drugs too, because this is not just about drink, is it? And, but he's not just talking about that, he's talking about being intoxicated with the world. That's really what he's saying. Being, being, being undisciplined rather than being self-controlled. Some of your translations will just say that, self-controlled. It's like, you know, we're like, Lord, I want you to help me with my thoughts. And he says, okay, I will. Be self-controlled. We want him to do it. Okay, it's a fruit of the Spirit. But at the same time, there's a decision that I have to make. And a lot of it just comes down to remembering how great the grace of God is. See, be honest, if Jesus came back tonight, would he be welcome or would that kind of intrude upon our plans? Because there's things that we wanted to do. There's places that we wanted to be. I've been really looking forward to that rather than him. I've been saving up so long for that. So, if Peter was here, and if he was reading this letter, I think he would say, when you disentangle your minds from all these things and get your focus right and look up, because he's coming soon, and gird up the loins of your mind and sober up, And make his priorities your priorities. Look up. He's coming soon. How would that affect our priorities if we actually thought every day Jesus could come back today? 
this is how we fix our hope. The Apostle John is on the island of Patmos, writing on the book of Revelation, all about the coming of Christ. And at the end he says, even so, what? Come, Lord Jesus. He's like, don't, don't delay. I can't wait. Come now. That's the perspective to live in. The thing is, you might think, oh, I don't know if I've got that. If you've not, I have to ask you, don't you think he makes him sad? If he's coming, then we're like, oh, oh, not just now. You know, I've got some stuff on. Really. So fix your hope on Jesus. He's coming soon. And it's going to be great. Because he's coming with grace and he's good. Come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Shall we stand to pray? I'll read from the message as we as we do to help you focus and fix your hope and as I say I'm going to then stand at the front as we worship and hold these out and if anybody wants to come and just take one or a couple as many as I've got let's pray I'm going to read this in the message look up look forward to the grace that's to come gird up your mind what's distracting you what's tripping you up what's holding you back Hebrews talks about this he says let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith here's how it reads in the message do you realise how fortunate you are angels would have given anything to be in on this so roll up your sleeves Put your mind in gear. Be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org media.